Alrighty. Well, we have for you guys today two quizzes. So the iTunes quiz is due today and quiz number seven is due today. Again, by six o'clock tomorrow, those are up and available. So you can complete those anytime between now and then. Uh, other thing coming up this week is the Solar Observations Project, which will be due on Friday. And the exam replacement, if you're choosing to do that, again, that is optional. If you're choosing to do that, will be due on Monday the 3rd. And that should give me enough time to get everything back to you. My goal for the final exam, which is right, right about here right now, I didn't write down quite that far, probably by Wednesday I'll be there. Um, put the final exam down there, is to have all of this back to you so that your grades going into the final are known except for the final and Let's see, your case, you know the lab grade. My other class won't know their lab grade till later. So, But yours is all, in, all included in one. So you should go into the final knowing exactly where you, where you stand, you know, knowing what you need to do on the final in order to, in order to get, get the grade or what, grade, what grades are, are reachable at that point. So I will, my goal will be to have the solar observation projects and the due back this week, the exam replacement back this week. All of this should be graded. Homework 8 will be due on... The Friday, December the 7th, so I will have, oops, you don't want this one. You don't want this homework. It's close, but at least for the last one. This will fit a little bit more in with what we're talking about. So this will be the last of the homeworks, and I'll have that. I'll try to, I'll have it, might not have it back to you, but grades will at least be posted on D2L as to where you stand. Yes, sir. So you'll at least know where your grades are. You might not get a lot of this back until the, until the final exams, things such as the homeworks or anything turned in late. I expect to have the solar observation projects back to you before. Do you want one? So I expect to, the solar observations will be back. Sometimes the exam replacements, depending on how many I get, take me a little bit longer to look through. So you might not get those back until the final exam. but. I will have them done that done that week. So homework eight is missing. Quiz eight is up there, and then the final exam is all that we have all that we have left. Plus a couple of labs. We got labs this week and next week, but most of the material is in and done and done now. So we're rapidly approaching the end. Yay, boo! Finally, I know. Questions? Think that there? Already, whoops. We don't want to jump to gravitational lensing quite yet. Let's look at our picture of the day for today. The Wisps of the Veil Nebula, nice picture for this class in stellar astronomy. This is actually a supernova remnant uh, visible in the northern hemisphere. It's in the constellation of Cygnus. And this is what's left over. This is what you see about 9,000 years after a star explodes. So 9,000 years ago, if we could have looked up at this point in the sky, you would have seen an incredibly bright star for a short period of time. For a period of a few months, you would have had a star that outshone every other star in the sky. Sun would have been brighter, full moon would have been brighter, but would have been estimated to have been about as bright as the crescent moon. So, meaning that a supernova occurring close enough would be something you could actually see during the day. So you wouldn't have to wait for nighttime to see it if you knew where to look in the day and it's not too close to the sun, obviously. You know, you'd be able to see this star shining during the day. So 9,000 years later, those layers have spread out into space. And that's what you're seeing here is just these kind of wispy layers that have expanded out over 9,000 years to, at a tremendous speeds to, to look this big on the sky. This is actually 
several degrees across that has expanded over 9,000 years. And you think about how far away these things are and how many light years these have had to travel out. This, this, the shocks are moving at incredible, incredible speeds. Now, supernovae, the last supernova explosion in our galaxy was in the early 1600s. The last one we know of, the last one we were actually able to see. So early was it 1604, as I recall. 1604. Galileo used, started using the telescope in 1609. So we have not had a supernova in, the, in our galaxy to study since the telescope was invented. There were two. There was one in 15, 1572 and then 1604, as I recall the dates. So there were a couple right there, but then right after that, there has not been one since. So in the intervening 400 and some years, there has not been a supernova in our galaxy. Well, maybe there has. We just wouldn't be able to see it. Remember that our galaxy is very dusty. We can't see the center of our galaxy. So if a supernova occurred on the other side of our galaxy, we'd have no way of knowing it. We'd have no clue that a star just exploded, even though someone looking from much further away at a different angle would have seen it easily. But one's coming. There's going to be one here. Will it occur next week? Maybe. Will it occur 300 years from now? Just as likely. You know, there's no way to tell. I can tell you which stars. You can go out there and look and see, OK, there's stars that are the ones we think will go supernova, the ones we think will explode. But you can't narrow it down any closer than that. Yeah, this, it's going to ex explode in the relatively near future, astronomically speaking. Meaning, maybe tomorrow, maybe 100 years, maybe 1,000 years. But the odds are, you know, we're due for a supernova in this, in this galaxy. We are due for one you know, that we would be able to see. It just hasn't happened yet. If you've heard, we had, we had one, what was it, about 25 years ago now, supernova 1987A, which was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a satellite galaxy to ours. So there was actually one there that we were able to study relatively well. But the difficulty is with most of the supernovae is the problem with being able to, how good our models are on supernovae and being able to know what the star was really like before it exploded. You see a supernova in a distant galaxy, that's great. You can study the supernova. But you're not going to have any images close enough that could show you what that star really was like before. So we don't know what the star was, was like before. Supernova 1987A helped us with that a little bit. To have one here, if a star that you know, we've seen and that has been studied and cataloged for hundreds of years were to go supernova, it would give us a lot more baseline. Now, what was the star like? What were the properties leading up to that explosion? So again, it'll happen. Just maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe, you know. Maybe that's December 21st. Maybe we're getting a great supernova explosion occurring there to, to see. In fact, I should say, they've, they've already occurred, right? We're just waiting for the news to get to us. So, I mean, there's supernovae that have occurred in our galaxy that are probably, if it occurred 500 years ago and it's 600 light years away, we've got 100 years to wait for the light to actually get to us. Questions? All right, then we will go out to gravitational lensing. And let me put this up here for a second. But gravitational lensing was the bending of light by a strong source of gravity. So very strong source of gravity bends the light. And we can actually get, we were showing you here, we could get multiple images of the same quasar. So a distant quasar here. The light travels away from it in all directions. Some of that gets bent by an intervening galaxy, an intervening black hole. Anything with a large amount of mass can bend that and then cause it 
to appear to come back to us here. So if we trace it back, it looks like there's two images. So we'd see two images looking like two images of the identical object. And this is one way that we can study what is going on in the universe. Where is, we've mentioned dark matter. And where is this dark matter is partially one thing we can see through gravitational lensing. We can see where the matter is. And let me do, I've got a couple, I didn't put this up full screen yet because I had a couple of videos to show here. Let me see if this is, this is a simulation I want to show you. This is actually looking at moving a mass now at a much faster rate than we'd ever see. So this takes about 30 seconds to go through. You see little blue and red dots there? They're going to travel diagonally across the screen. That's the intense source of gravity. And watch how it distorts the field as it moves in front. Now certainly galaxies, uh, the objects would not normally move this fast. But everything is there is due to gravitational effects. Now watch, it's sort of on a course with this very bright galaxy here in the center to go right in front of it. And you'll see what I mentioned, that ring that will occur as you get it lined up perfectly. So right there for an instant, you get a perfect ring. Now that's still the, gra that's still the same source. So every place on that ring is that, is that same galaxy. It's not distorting the galaxy itself. It's not doing anything to the galaxy. See how it goes right back to normal. It's just a matter of this intense gravitational, like putting a big lens going through across things, and having just that intense gravity disrupting our image. Doesn't do anything to the galaxy itself. It's nowhere near the galaxy. It could be a galaxy can be way back here, a billion light years further away. That can be right in front. It's just when it happens to line up perfectly. But that's one example of what the, what the gravitational lensing can do. And that can tell us about the material. What is that object made up of? Is this just a, you know, can we learn about this, the mass? It's a black hole. Is it a black hole? Is it a whole bunch of galaxies that are doing this? Because you just need a strong source of gravity. It doesn't have to be, you know, just a massive black hole. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Now the other one I wanted to do, let me see here. There's one more video I wanted to show on this one, and that was on here. So let me pause for one second here. Resume. Okay, so another way of looking at the dark matter, and it's a way for us to understand where the dark matter is out there. We see its effects gravitationally, but we can't observe it any other way. Gravitational lensing is one way that we are actually able to see that. So. Here's a couple of examples. Again, we looked at some of those in that video where you could get everything lined. If you get everything lined up perfectly, you get what we call the Einstein ring, where you get a ring specifically around that source. Here, in one case, you have the galaxy. You have a much more distant object behind it. And in this case, instead of just seeing you know, one image, you'd normally see just one. Instead of just seeing maybe two images, you actually are able to see four images. The better the, line, the, better the alignment of Earth, the galaxy and the distant quasar, the more images you'll be able to see. In a perfect alignment of everything, you would actually get a ring. You'd actually be able to see a ring. So you might get several images, you might get, you might get a couple images, you might get several images depending on how exactly lined up everything is. Now here's a couple more examples of gravitational lensing. And you have on the left hand side, you have, you can see sort of the wisps of the, where the material's been distorted. You can see all the different wisps of things as things have been lensed by, in fact, not just a single galaxy, but the gravity of the entire cluster of galaxies. And as I mentioned in our other video, 
the, the dark matter is most of the mass. So the little bit of mass that we see, what we see there visibly is only a tiny fraction of the matter in the, in the galaxies or in the galaxy clusters. There is a lot more matter surrounding them of the dark matter kind that we can't detect in any other way other than gravitationally. That's the only way we can see it. We see it through its gravitational effects. We don't see anything else. We don't see it glowing. We don't see it emitting lots of radio waves. We don't see it emitting lots of x-rays. We don't see it emitting visible light. It is completely dark. It's dark at all wavelengths. But we see its effects gravitationally by what it's distorted from distant galaxies behind this. So here you're seeing distant galaxies imaged sort of by the whole cluster. In this case, you probably have another, you have a single galaxy behind there and you're seeing all these different images of it as it goes through this galaxy cluster. Now the ring was a perfect alignment, if you recall. The ring needed a very perfect alignment. It's kind of hard to get a perfect alignment unless you're talking about you know, a massive black hole doing the gravity, to causing the gravity. When you have all these clusters, you might get multiple images. You don't even get that ring or those arcs. You get all sorts of ones scattered around as light has traveled all sorts of different odd paths through this cluster of galaxies. So we'll see all sorts of different images. But again, the cluster here, but you'll see images over here. And you can sort of make out what are this one galaxy, how it's been distorted, and how we're seeing it. But by studying that, by studying all those images, we can go back and map out where the dark matter is in that cluster. So the dark matter seems to fill this entire area. So not only is the dark matter associated with each individual galaxy that we saw earlier, it's also associated with the clusters. So you get a lot of dark matter within, within this entire cluster. Again, 10 times, 50 times, 100 times the amount of matter for each galaxy you see. So you see this galaxy in the cluster? That's one. Well, there's 50 times or say worth of that much matter in this cluster for that galaxy, another 50 times for that galaxy, there's a lot of stuff that we don't see. A lot of material that we cannot see any other way than gravitationally. Our normal matter, you know, this, 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 you know, everything we're used to, our solar system, the stars, the galaxies, everything we've studied in this class, is probably only a few percent of the matter in the universe. Very tiny fraction. The rest of it is this, is, a lot of it is the dark matter, and there's one other component to talk about later on, which is actually dwarfs the dark matter. It's actually even more, which is called dark energy, which is another big component of what we think is the material of the universe. So the gravitational lensing, that's why I'm going through that here, is what we see. Is the, the gravitational lensing is what we see, the effects of this dark matter. Now, here's another set of images, and this is where the astronomers have gone through the calculation. On the left, that's the galaxies. That's what we see. So here's a cluster of galaxies. See a few stars in there. See a whole bunch of galaxies in there. When we look at the gravitational lensing effects and map out, okay, where does the matter have to be in order that we see what we see? We see all this certain amount of distortion. That means there has to be a certain amount of mass spread around there. I can see some of it, right? I see some galaxies. I can tell where that matter is. But where does the dark matter have to be? So we know how much mass has to be there total. We can map out and say, OK, we know where the visible matter is. We can, we can account for that because we can see it. We can make radio observations. We can make visible observations. We can look in the x-rays. We can map out where that matter is. What's left over? 
where is the rest of the matter have to be? And it's spread out quite widely around that cluster of galaxies. So here's the cluster of galaxies here. There's the dark matter densely concentrated toward the center, but extending out well beyond the boundaries of that cluster itself. So just based on the motion between the motion of the galaxies and looking at the motion of the gravitational lensing, we can map out and figure out where the dark matter, how it is distributed in the universe. So we can try to figure out where everything must be. Gives us a map of something we can't see otherwise. Again, the only way we see this is through its gravitational effects. And we'll come back in the next chapter, as we're about done with this one, we'll come back in the next chapter and look a little bit more about the dark matter, but really go on to what we call dark energy, which is most of the matter slash energy in the universe. So our little tiny portion, our little normal matter, everything we're used to, and not just you know here on Earth, but everything astronomically we're used to, is a very tiny fraction of that, of that matter. So let me finish up here and just give you a quick review of chapter 16. We looked at masses, how to determine the galaxy masses. Those were done by looking at the rotation curves. How did the stars rotate as you went further and further out of the galaxy? Eventually, if you get beyond most of the mass, those galaxy stars should be going slower and slower and slower. We don't see that. We don't see it in our galaxy. We don't see it in other galaxies. Everything we measure shows that there has to be a lot more matter within those galaxies. A lot more than we're possibly seeing, and a lot more not concentrated in a black hole at the core. That would work. If it was all at the core, we'd be able to see that gravitationally wouldn't matter. It means it's got to be spread out over a much bigger area. And that for our galaxy, for every star we see in our galaxy, there's several more stars worth of matter out beyond the visible boundaries of our galaxy in order to just to explain what we see and how the stars move. The other thing we looked at was galaxy mergers, collisions. Um, we think that galaxies actually formed through collisions, that you start off with very large star clusters, big clusters, big you know, mini irregular galaxies, and over time those would collide together and grow to actually form the galaxies that we see today. We know that's the case because when we look further back in time, right? we can look back in time in astronomy, that's one of the nice things we can do, and see what galaxies were like a long time ago. There weren't big spiral galaxies. There weren't big elliptical galaxies. There were lots of little tiny galaxies dominated. Today, we don't see that. Today, we get dominated by the large elliptical galaxies, some large spiral galaxies. So we think that over time, they, merge to get, they have merged together. Depending on how you merge, you can get different types of galaxies. You can merge galaxies. If you smash two spiral galaxies together, Early on in the history of the universe, you might be able to make an elliptical galaxy. So take two spiral galaxies, just smash them together and disrupt everything. All of a sudden, you get this incredible large burst of star formation. You know, the quasars, the blazars, we had all that star formation, all that energy being emitted at once, and then they're done. They've used up all their gas and dust. There's nothing left over. You've completely gravitationally disrupted all any pattern you had in your original spiral galaxies, and you have an elliptical left. So you'd actually have an elliptical galaxy. You could also, if you have you know, a smaller disk galaxy and you hit it right with a smaller galaxy, you might enhance the spiral arms. So it's all a matter of how things happen to collide. We think that there is the quasars are all very old, 10 billion years. You know, the, we, we don't see any quasars any closer than 10 billion light years, so there aren't any now. 
But we think that there is an evolutionary sequence between a quasar, the most intense active galaxy, the more normal active galaxy, some of the ones that we looked at last time, and what we call a normal galaxy. And all it has to do with is that black hole calming down. Right? You're feeding that black hole a lot, giving it a lot of, a lot of fuel, and it's going to be extremely active. That's billions of years ago when everything was colliding together and we had the era of the quasars. As it slowed down, still active, still feeding those black holes a little bit, we had the active galaxy. You're still getting more energy. They quiet down to normal galaxy. The black hole's still there. It's just taking, it's not taking in much more material. So it's calmed down. It's calmed down and you see what we call a normal galaxy. Now, we started looking at the structures, and we're going to come back to that again in the next chapter. But the galaxy clusters were bound together. We're in our, what we call the local group, about 45 galaxies. Uh, that's part of the Virgo cluster, which is part of the Virgo supercluster, which is bound into bigger, bigger and bigger clusters. So there's groupings of galaxies grouped together the way stars did into clusters and into galaxies. The galaxies also group together. And again, some of this we'll come back to in our next chapter. There is some structures when we look at smaller scales, hundreds of millions of parsecs. There's some scales. We have the big voids. There can be whole stretches that, air, that size that are empty. No galaxies, hardly any galaxies. There can be others that have a whole lot of galaxies. When you look at a bigger scale than that, if I try to look at you know, many hundreds of millions of parsecs, it's just more of a frothy appearance. So one area doesn't look all that different than any other area overall. Yes, if you go down to the details and look at galaxies, it's not going to look exactly the same. But the overall statistics of the galaxies don't change. You're not going to find a big giant area of the universe bigger than this that is completely empty of galaxies. You're not going to find some that have you know, tons more galaxies than others do. It's pretty much there's, everything is the same when you look at those very largest scales. Quasars. Again, we looked. They're very nice because they're far away. We're talking 10, 12, 13 billion light years away, meaning that their light has traveled through the entire universe to get to us. And we can use that to tell us about you know, what is the space like. What's there? We looked at the hydrogen lines. We can map the hydrogen out on that entire path that took and find out where, how the hydrogen is distributed. We can also use the gravitational lensing that we looked at by, if that quasar is lensed by a galaxy, we can learn about the matter within that specific galaxy. So we can learn how the matter is distributed and especially has taught us about the dark matter. And that there is a lot more matter out there than what we can possibly see. Chapter 16? Question? No? No? Okay. Let's go on to this week's chapter, chapter 17 then. Chapter 17 is cosmology. So we're next to the last chapter. Cosmology, that picture probably looks familiar. It's like some of the ones we've been looking at with uh, examples of gravitational lensing. What cosmology is, is really studying the history and the fate of the universe. So where, how did the universe form? And so I'll go back and talk about the Big Bang. And where is it going? What's, it, what's going to eventually happen to it? So right now we have galaxies. Remember we talked about how everything's expanding away from us. Well, does that continue? Right? You'd expect that as things expand away, you know, they should be slowed down. Right? Everything's gravitationally pulling on everything else. So if we send a spacecraft out into space, Earth's always pulling it back. 
Might be moving fast enough to get away, but it's always pulling it back. So we'd expect that galaxies should, should be slowing down over time. The question is, is there enough mass in the universe for them to slow down and stop? Is there enough mass there that they can slow down and stop? If they stop, we still have gravity, right? So if things are stopped, what's going to happen? Do they contract back in? Or was the Big Bang so expansive that it's just going to keep going forever? They're moving faster than the escape velocity and it just continues to expand forever. So those are the kind of things that we're going to look at over the course of this week in, in Chapter 17. So as a summary here, let me just put up. We've got the universe at the largest scales, sort of picking up where we left off in the last chapter. We've talked about that. We've talked about the expanding universe. And then we're going to look in a little bit more detail. And this is where we start to get, start to work with your mind again. <laughs> you know, we had it with black holes, right, a little bit. When we start talking about the geometry of, shape, of space and how, shape is, how space is shaped, it starts, to get, it starts to get there a little bit again. So what kind of shape does space have? It's kind of hard to imagine. We have to, again, go down a dimension to try to be able to understand what's going on there. We kind of jump and do, we do the end first. You know, what is the fate of the universe? It really depends on what its shape is. Depending on how space is shaped tells us what the end is going to be. Is it going to expand forever or is it going to start contracting? Then we'll go back and look at the earlier universe. Okay, we know what's going to happen, sort of. At least give you some ideas of the possibilities that what might happen. What was it like very early on? That's back to the Big Bang time. So what happened there? How did we form the very first nuclei and atoms? The very earliest universe formed hydrogen and helium. So essentially at one point, the, we had a great big star and the entire universe would have been like one gigantic star fusing hydrogen to helium. It was expanding so quickly that lasted only a very short time. It never got to fuse anything else. So some, hydro, some hydrogen was formed and then some helium was formed in the very early universe but nothing else. Everything else, everything we see here, was formed from stars. So stars, supernovae, explosions. So even though as I showed you the supernova remnant, right, you've got that direct first-hand experience of being in a supernova. At least bits of you have. But, so you have that exact memory. Cosmic inflation, nothing to do with the value of the dollar or anything, you know, changing. Cosmic inflation is the inflation of space. We talk about the expansion of space, but inflation is something that went on very early on where space went from being something very tiny, you know, molecular sized, to being something universe sized in an incredibly short instant. So very rapid, you know, super hyperinflation where the universe greatly increased in size. And we'll look at that. And then we've looked at the large scale structures. That's sort of what we look at at the beginning. And we come back, how does all this tie together to see what we formed, how we formed the large scale structures that we do see today. So we've seen this already. Again, this is one of the largest structures. So one of the largest structures that we see is this great wall. But if you look, ignoring again, ignore the fact that there's fewer galaxies out here just because we can't see as many. But it doesn't really matter whether I take you know, any big chunk here, a real big chunk. The number of galaxies within it is going to be right about the same. They're pretty much uniformly distributed. So if we, and if we could see out here better, we'd expect that this would all fill in very well because it's just that so many of those galaxies are so faint that we're not able to see them very easily. So we don't see any of these really large structures 
in the universe. So nothing larger than the, the 300 million parsecs is sort of a guideline. 300 million parsecs would be about three bars on here. So a big circle about three bars across, if you were to look at that, any section on here, it doesn't really matter which one I pick, they're all about this. They're, they all look roughly the same. There's no great big void, you know, not a great big void like this that fills in everything. So that means that the universe is what we call homogeneous. This block looks like this block looks like this block. It doesn't matter which one I look at, they all look pretty much the same. Again, are they identical? No. There are going to be slight differences. This one might have a, a void in this spot and this one might have a void in that spot. But overall, statistically, their general structure is going to be the same. They're going to have the same number of galaxies, same density of galaxies. Everything's going to be about the same. So that's what we mean homogeneous. Every block, every section of the galaxy of the universe that I look at looks exactly the same. So that doesn't work in things like a galaxy. Right? A galaxy would not be homogeneous. If I took a section of the galaxy near the center, I'm going to get a lot more stars. If I take a section of the galaxy towards the outer edge, I'm going to get a lot fewer. If I get a section that includes a big spiral arm, it's going to look different than if I get a section that's in between the spiral arms. So a galaxy would not be homogeneous, but on the very largest scales, uh, the universe is. Now the other thing that we say the universe is, is that it's isotropic. Meaning that it doesn't matter where I look in the universe. So I can look out that way, I can look out that way. It looks the same. There's no difference that if I look out in this whole big direction, I see no galaxies or different types of galaxies. And if I look in this direction, I see something completely different. It doesn't matter if I take a really deep image far away of this side and this side and all different places, I'm going to see the same types of galaxies, same distribution of galaxies. So the universe doesn't matter where you look, it's homogeneous, whatever block you look at, but in all directions as we look out, it's also the same. So we say the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. And that's what we call part of the cosmological principle makes these assumptions. So are they really correct? Whenever you're making an assumption, it's a, you know, it's a difficult thing. Are you saying, it's sort of like Einstein said, you know, the assumption is that speed of light is the maximum. If that's not, that throws out all of special relativity. So our study of cosmology bases on the assumptions that the universe is isotropic and homogeneous. That's what we see right now. Could other observations come to change our things? Certainly that is something that could happen. But based on our observations right now, everything fits with these two assumptions that we've made. Sort of like everything we study in the universe right now says that the speed of light is the limiting, is the limiting speed. Now this leads us to one thing. Because if we go back, you know, even a hundred years, the universe was homogeneous and isotropic. Now it was also, if it's considered to be infinite, okay, that's something we don't necessarily think now, but a while ago, a long time ago, a hundred years ago, yeah, the universe was infinite. There's no edge to the universe. It just goes on forever. So if it is infinite and if it's unchanging, then that led to a problem. And it led to what we call Ober's paradox. If those things are all true, then the entire sky should be bright as the surface of the sun. Wow. Why? No matter where you're looking, eventually, pick any spot to look at, pick a direction to look at, eventually you're going to strike the surface of a star. Okay? Eventually you're going to hit a star, you're going to hit part of a galaxy, it may be far, far away. 
Now that doesn't take into account certain things like dust that we know about that were not really understood back then. But the idea was no matter where you looked in an infinite universe, you should eventually see the surface of the star. So the sky should be blazingly bright. And it isn't. So the big question of the time was why is the universe not infinitely bright? Why is the sky not bright as the daytime sky all the time? And it has to do with, it has to mean that some of those assumptions are incorrect. So is the universe isotropic? It sure looks like it. Is it homogeneous? It sure looks like it. So that means that the universe must either not be infinite, it can't extend out forever, because eventually no matter where I look I'd see a star, I'd see a galaxy, you know, I'd see something out in that space, eventually I would see something out in, that, out in the distance. Or is it not unchanging? We also know that the universe isn't is, is changing. So, again, we're going with our assumptions. The universe is homogeneous and isotropic, so it must not be infinite and or maybe not unchanging as well. We've already seen some changes. We haven't looked about the, the infinite side yet, so come back to that. But we already know that the universe is changing. You know, we just talk about you know, a stat, what we call the static universe means that the galaxies are there. And they're always there, and they're just an infinite number of them as you go further and further out. But we have found one thing. We've already found, we looked at Hubble's law, we found out that there is a change, and that the galaxies are moving away from us faster the further away they are. So there is a relationship between the distance and the recessional velocity. We looked at this earlier as Hubble's law. So we can determine distances based on me simply measuring the velocities of how something is receding. Well, there's a part of how the universe is actually changing. So the universe isn't, sta isn't completely static. It's changing. The galaxies are getting further away. That allows part of this change that sort of accounts for what we understand as Olber's paradox, kind of explaining the paradox. So we have that. We also have that the universe is not infinite. So it doesn't go on forever. Now again, not that long ago, 100 years ago, we would have thought the universe, it was thought that the universe just went on forever. There was no, no reason, to, reason to have it bounded. We now think that there are limits to the universe, which comes down to the question, you know, what's at the edge of the universe? What's, what's beyond it? So we'll come, we'll come to that a little bit more when we, talk, when we talk about some of this. But if the universe is not infinite, then you know, there's, there's a limit. Or is there? Does everything that has, everything that has, that has no, does everything have to have an edge to be infinite? Does, it have, does that mean it has to have an edge? Well, if you are a two-dimensional creature stuck on the surface of the Earth, is there an edge to the surface of the Earth? You can travel around the Earth. You can keep going around it and around. You're ever going to reach an edge. You're never going to reach one. Is the universe the same type of thing in three and four and multiple dimensions? Where you can keep traveling, is it curved in on itself so that you can keep traveling around the universe and around the universe? And you might end up back where you started. You might end up someplace else. But it doesn't mean you know, it's, in, it's, it's, it's not infinite, but it is bounded. There is an edge to it. So it would, it, would not be, it would not be an infinite universe. But just because it's not an infinite universe doesn't mean it has to have an edge, that you're going to get to the edge of the universe and say we're done. It might be bounded in. Think of it like the surface of the Earth. And if you don't have that option of looking upwards and saying, well, I can go this way and get off the Earth, then you know, we don't have that option when we look at the universe. So we'll come back to that in a little bit here. But once we have Hubble's law, we have some nice equations here, right? We know this one. Time equals distance divided by velocity. 
right? Use that. Everybody's hopefully everybody's used that one before at some point. Um, you know, in a math class to do a do a story problem or something. Yay. So velocity though, we know what the velocity is of a galaxy. It's just Hubble's constant times the distance. Distance, distance, those are the same for that galaxy. How long did it take that galaxy to get there? Well, the time is how far it had to move divided by the velocity at which it's moving. We can measure that velocity. In fact, we know what it is based on Hubble's law. The distance doesn't matter. The distances just cancel out. And the time it takes is just 1 divided by Hubble's constant. So if Hubble's constant is 50, kilometers per second per megaparsec, say, then 1 50th is how long it took that to get there. 1 50th of what? Right? 1 50th. The 50th of a second? Well, that couldn't happen, right? You know, been here longer than, suffered through this class longer than a 50th of a second, right? Many 50ths of a second. Um, but you have to watch out with well, the problem here is that the units are not set up correctly. Is that you have kilometers and you have millions of parsecs. Well, there's a heck of a lot of kilometers and a million parsecs. I'm not going to make you do it. You can go through a conversion factor and convert this into units that would be 1 over second so that when you take the reciprocal of it, when you take 1 divided by this number, it's not 1 50th, but it gives you an estimated age for the universe of around 13, 14 billion years based on this number. But it depends very heavily on what the number is. So if we make that number 10% bigger, then the age of the universe just got 10% smaller. Make that number 10% smaller, then the universe just got older. Based on our measurements of the number. It's not that the number is, there's some number, right? We just don't know what it is. You know, is it 50? Is it 45? Is it 60? Is it 70? You know, it's in that range. We've narrowed it down. When I was in graduate school, it was maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 150. Now it's more like, well, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 70. So we're narrowing it down a little bit, but we still don't know exactly what the value is. But it, whatever it is gives us an estimate of how long it took the galaxies to get there. Using this very simple formula, just saying the distance they traveled, if their velocities haven't, haven't changed, that's a good thing. Their velocities probably have changed, so it's not an exact measurement, but it gives you a rough idea. Because velocities would have changed, right? If things are expanding, wouldn't they, have, wouldn't they be slowing down slowly over time? Gravity's pulling them back in, right? I keep saying that, and then I'm going to go tell you that's not the case later on. But Now I'm really going to confuse everybody. Okay. But you'd expect, right? Everything's moving out. Well, you've got gravity pulling it down. You've got all this dark matter. It's all pulling everything inward. It should slow everything down. So galaxies should be moving slower now than they were a long time ago. It makes perfect sense. So that would throw off this calculation a little bit. But just, again, just as a quick, rough idea, it gives you an idea of how fast the galaxies are expanding. So if we use the Hubble's constant as 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, convert megaparsecs into kilometers or kilometers to megaparsecs to fix the units on it, take 1 divided by that number you end up getting, you get about 14 billion years. So that's about what we find for the age of the, that's about our estimate for the age of the universe. It doesn't matter who's measuring. It doesn't matter if we're making the measurement or some astronomer in a distant galaxy is making the measurement. We're all going to get exactly the same value. So we're all going to get an identical value for 
the age of the universe. It's going to be exactly the same regardless. doesn't matter whether I'm measuring it or someone you know, a billion light years away is measuring it or someone five billion light years in the other direction is measuring it. We're all going to get exactly the same value for Hubble's law and Hubble's constant. It's a universal constant. It doesn't depend on where you are in the universe. That doesn't make any difference. It just depends on how the universe is expanding. So start here and then I'll come back to this on Wednesday. Um, if we go backwards, that means that if we have this expansion. Naturally, if you take everything backwards, right? bring those galaxies closer together. What were things like in the past? Bring them closer and closer together. Then that's when we end up with the Big Bang. So where did the Big Bang occur? Everywhere. Wasn't in any specific place. It occurred simultaneously throughout the entire universe. So it's not like it occurred in a space and then expanded outwards. It occurred everywhere at the same time. And that's why we measure, no matter where we are, we measure the same Hubble law. It's exactly the same, the constant is the same, regardless of where we are. And then I'm going to pause here so that I can give you the class evaluation time. Yay. So I'm going to have you do that, give you the last uh, almost, 10, almost 10 minutes worth to do that. And then I will finish up, I'll pick up here on Wednesday and we'll finish up with the, with the Big Bang. So I'm going to give you those. Let me stop this.